Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Hey, you two. Happy November. Uh, I'm glad to have made it through Halloween. I, I think to myself about how we, we talk about acceleration in all things of American life. I love Halloween, but it feels like this year it was like two weeks long and, you know, involved all sorts of new rituals. And, you know, I guess if anything is going to get larger and more important, it should be Halloween. But good, good Lord. Yeah, I feel like I saw Halloween uh, things at CVS like after Labor Day. Something yeah. like that. I was like, I was like, what? It's Halloween already? Like, but yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Sarah? How was your Halloween? I mean, ha- Halloween's probably my favorite holiday. Sorry, mm. Jesus. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just find it to be really uncomplicated. It's for reasons we've talked about, you know, on the podcast before. And it was interesting because we did it in a whole new city. And, you know, ev- I feel like every town we lived in has had like a unique culture around Halloween. And so mm. we weren't really sure what we were walking into. And it was really fun. Like all the adults were like dressed up in costumes. And that was really fun. And it felt very about the kids, which I loved. But it also felt long. Like I'll agree with you. And different, right? We like I took Annie, Josh took Neil. We, Annie and I did like a ton of just trick-or-treating with a group of friends. And then we met Neil and Josh. And it was like, you know, I mean, and then we were at somebody else's house for a while. And I was like, oh, my God, uh, it's a Tuesday night. We have school tomorrow, <laughs> which is why I'm currently in my pajamas and took both children to school like this. So um, by the skin of our teeth. Yeah. RJ, what was it like for you? I mean, you've still, you've still got a, a young'un who's in the, yeah. throw, the throes of the it wonder. Was it was long, too. We, we, um, there's a party on Saturday night we went to, which was a birthday party, technically, but it was also like a dress-up 80s party. So we kind of started early and then um, had it again last night. Although when we showed up last night to the little kind of pre-party with all the parents, like all the kids are dressed up all the moms are dressed up. And then there were only like think, two dads who were dressed up. So we both looked at each other. We're like, thank God you dressed up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that was good. Um, but yeah, we just walked, you know, got our steps in, walked a lot, yeah. had a good time. Um, Marshall, it, for Marshall, everything is competitive. So he had to run and be at the front of every line and get to every house first. And yeah. he and his little buddies were just racing the whole night. So he was just a sweaty mess. Yeah. Because it's Florida and it's hot for Halloween. Yeah. Um, but it was it was great. It was fun. Halloween's super fun. I did see, you know, that every year because it, it's uh, Reformation Day as well on the 31st that now like there's always those memes of like 95 Reese's as opposed uh-huh. to 95 Theses. And now that Reese's has more than 95 different products, like if you go to the convenience store, if you go to the grocery store, Reese's is really kind of run with it, you know, and yeah. I'm, I'm, again, I'm all for this, Yes. but I think it's funny now you can actually have 95 different types of Reese's 
in your meme. And that's what we tried to show on Mockingbird. I thought that was, that was clever. Um, I'm a Snickers guy. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm not going to apologize for it. I think Snickers is the best. We were saying how in the 90s, I feel like Snickers was like almost, they tried to market themselves almost as a quasi energy bar, right? Packed yeah. with peanuts. Snickers yeah. is like before Cliff Bars, there were Snickers. And it's yes. like, Yes. So he's going for the health angle. That's his. Oh uh, yeah, and yeah, I eat it with yeah. a knife and fork, of course, like Mr. <laughs> Pitt from Seinfeld. <laughs> well, we we were in a new we're in a new neighborhood as well, and uh, yeah, just it was it, the temperature dropped like ten degrees, so it felt oh, like God. really kind of Halloweeny. It was very cold, yeah, especially for our Houston kids. They were like, "What is this?" You know, and Annie was still like running around without sleeves on, and I was like, "Well, you know, that way their- keeping your head warm." What was Neil again? He was a in- he was Neil-, the- <laughs> Neil was Doug from Liberty Mutual, <laughs> <laughs> which That's he so came funny. up with entirely on his own, and like. Yesterday had like 30 minutes between school and when trick-or-treating started. And like, we don't have a color printer that works. I'm so sorry, St. B's. We went and borrowed yours. Mm. And he printed out like the logo. He had it like, like he did it all. He had a little emu that he was carrying. Um, Amazing. Well, I want to say that I think that, you know, you can always take the pulse of the culture a little bit and we also i saw a couple who she was dressed as flo from progressive and he was dressed as jake from Allstate. yeah and so we're now and my kids tell me about jake from Allstate. you know yeah. they're like uh yeah and, and we're living in a time when insurance companies are really branded but like with individual icons almost yes and uh i didn't see it it's- coming it's it's because insurance costs too damn much and they want to make us feel better about it Otherwise, I saw a lot of Barbies and I saw a lot of Patrick Mahomes and yes, Travis Kelsey did make um, oh. a lot of the, the Kansas City Chiefs are just raking it in right now. I have yeah, to, they're they're doing okay. Oh, it lost the Broncos on Sunday, which is insane. Right. Well, was Taylor there? I, yeah. Oh, that, that's a good question. I don't know. Maybe the Taylor effect. That's yeah. all people that's care what about. It was. Yeah. Well, let's uh, move into something a little more. Sort of fluffy here, but <laughs> pun intended. This is from Rose Horowitz in The Atlantic this week. She writes that too many people own dogs. And she writes this, she's commenting on the overwhelming number of American dogs on anti-anxiety medication. Aww. A recent pet owner survey by the American Pet Products Association discovered that more than 50% of Americans purchase calming products for their dog. Now, I would say that 50% of those who answer surveys... <laughs> uh, do that. But Google searches for dog anxiety uh, have roughly tripled over the past decade. Uh, veterinary behaviorists um, have seen an uptick in a sort of, uh, they're, they're booked months and months in advance. And uh, so this is what Rose Horowitz writes. She says, one theory is that dogs today really are more anxious. Rather than buying from a breeder, more Americans are choosing to adopt. And according to the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, shelters are euthanizing nearly two-thirds fewer animals than they were a decade ago. That's amazing. Adoption saves lives, but it sometimes leaves traumatized pets with inexperienced owners. Meanwhile, we've also altered the way pets live. Uh, Pet dogs and cats used to spend more time outside. Now experts told me they're much more likely to stay indoors. Oh my God, they're just like kids. Familiar. Uh, When they do go outside, they're kept on leashes or under supervision. 
As Americans have fewer kids, they've begun to think of their pets as children and act as, quote, helicopter fur parents, one bioethicist told me. Animals tend to live longer under these conditions, but they miss out on mental stimulation and interaction with their own species. That might make them anxious or aggressive toward people and other dogs. The pandemic dog buying spike heightened all of these dynamics as millions of dogs spent their first years socially distancing. So, is the dog anxiety crisis real or is it a product of owners' anxiety-ridden psyches? Both explanations are depressing. Either humans are stressing dogs out so much that they truly need prescription meds, or owners are putting their dogs on unnecessary psychoactive drugs to address annoying but normal dog habits. It might be time, in other words, to reevaluate the way we approach dog ownership. Many Americans don't have the time, energy, or green space their pets need to thrive. If the choice is to medicate our dogs or to make them and ourselves miserable, pet ownership starts to seem ethically murky. Is this the same lady that wrote the piece about people not taking vacation? <laughs> no, it's not. This is okay. A- all this right. is interesting, though. We have a we have a dog who is uh, now on has got quite a bit more land to roam than she did when we were living in our old house, and uh, she loves it. She's thriving. She's got we got one of those sort of like invisible fences where she just goes crazy. Um, she still is pretty anxious. I mean, she just yaps and yips and yaps and yips, and it's like my life is sort of dealing with this. Uh, but we also have bears that meander through our property f- mm. quite regularly so maybe she's yapping at things that need to be yapped at but i don't know you guys are pet owners where do you fall on this or any- what does this bring up for you if my dogs get a haircut they're lucky they ain't getting meds <laughs> you know like that's insane i will say we have two dogs because we had one dog and she was kind of lonely you know and she was just always sort of star for attention so we're like okay we'll we'll get her a friend so we got two dogs and they kind of keep each other company but I feel, I mean, they spend most of their time in a little outdoor enclosure we have, except for maybe like, I don't know, a little bit in the morning and like an hour at night, pretty much. It's just off where office where Jamie works. So she's kind of with them, but I don't know. It's just and the other thing here. Do you guys have this in Charlottesville, Nashville? So there's a big thing in West Palm. You'll see like a lady pushing a stroller and you want to go see the baby. And then it's not a baby. It's a dog. I've never seen that here. People yeah, we don't push, do that shit here. I swear to you, I would say... of the strollers in West Palm Beach are pushing dogs. Hmm. And it just like, I don't understand. Like, the dog needs the exercise. The dog needs the exercise. In a stroller. Yeah. It's so crazy. I'm sorry. If you're a dog owner on a stroller, God bless you. And I'm glad that you love your your dog. Please please still give to Mockingbird, but. It's it's crazy. I mean, I just it's wild. It's wild. I've never experienced anything like it. Yeah, yeah. You'll see, Sarah. You're coming in January. You'll see it first. Time. I can't wait. You can't. Um, wait. I yeah. can't wait. I'm well, just gonna also... start walking up and be like, "Oh my god, what a cute baby! Oh my god!" I'll just do that over and over again for fun. We also have people in our community who have made it their job in life to drive around neighborhoods and leave piles of food in people's yards for stray cats. What? That is some New Orleans stuff right there, man. What are they doing? Like, if you want the cat, take them home. Right. <laughs> Feed the cats on the- in my it's- yard. Yeah, but there's a, there's a lot of um, there's a whole cat thing here, like a cat lady community. So we've got like I think five or six cats living. At our church, that people come by and feed, which I guess they do keep like the rats and the mice down or whatever. This is but. a total. This is all new to me. I did never heard of any of this. It was new to me too. It's there's a whole thing. So anyway, 
continue. Sarah, what what's your what are your, your thoughts here? Um, well, okay, so this is definitely pertinent to our lives because we had this big, beautiful, gorgeous backyard in Houston, and our dogs had the best time. And we have moved to a house with just the most bizarre yard ever. The front property's great, but it's the woods, and our corgi is just like a meal waiting to happen for the numerous wildlife around here. And so they're kind of in our backyard, but it gets really muddy. Like I fully had to give them baths the other day. So like they don't really run around out there and I don't like taking dogs for walks. So, um, maybe need a stroller. In, yeah, exactly. Maybe we'll look into medication. Like this is just giving me ideas at this point. Like I'll medicate the hell out of anything in my house. So I'm just like, maybe this is what I should do. Like I, you know, I mean, I just, I, the last thing I think people need to be saying is that people should have less dogs. I firmly believe the best thing for a dog, RJ, like you said, is another dog. Like, yeah. our dogs wrestle each other, and they do that inside. Like, they lay together. They're so happy together. Like, I just think the best thing for a dog is another dog, you know? But Well, there's a story that this woman tells at the end of this little article about how they had a dog, and about seven years into this dog's life, the dog got bitten by another dog. And this um. very chill, relaxed dog became very high-strung and mm-hmm. ang- anxious and was sort of mm-hmm. growly, you know, towards other dogs. Sure. And she realized, look, after she's read up about this, she's like, she thinks her dog really did get develop anxiety, and she starts to feel panic and guilt stricken that she wasn't, you know, putting Xanax and peanut butter and sort of feeding it to this dog. And it's very sweet. She records what the behavioralist, the veterinary behavioralist, these people exist, said to her. And she said, like, um, she's like, because she felt like she should have been a better dog owner. And she, the veterinary, she says... She sort of absolves her. She says, no, no, it's okay. You did the best you could. You did not know better. (laughs) And there's this moment of kind of touching, uh, yeah, absolution at the end of this and grace. And, and, you know, I'm always reminded of like, you know, sometimes it feels like everything is psychology, you know, and our relationship with our pets certainly are an avenue where we play that out. And from the classic, you know, children's books where you see, pet owners that look exactly like their pets, you know, there's, there's always, that's real, that's sort of some truth to that. And you just wonder how much of our relationships with not just our pets, but our children are simply just this weird codependent transference and we're playing out everything through them. But I also think it's an indication of just, we've talked about it many times, but loneliness. I mean, the grace of pets that I've discovered late in life or in middle age is that they just exude unconditional love. And that's mm-hmm. um, yeah. that's what we want. And that's what we're dying for. And so we will do anything we can to make our pets feel more comfortable or something like that. Because it, it's, it's an indication of the level of loneliness as well as anxiety. And I think that's important to say. It is interesting to hear you, Sarah, talk about your dogs, right? Because the, I mean, what you were saying about your dogs, like I don't want to let them outside because um, it's dangerous and it's messy. And I just, it's, it, yeah. I, I don't know what people feel about their kids, right? Yeah. Like I'm not going to let them outside because it's dangerous. I don't yeah. know what could happen to them out there. Yeah. And um, it's messy. And then you do, you know, you hear these stories about, um, yeah, bears eating dogs or coyotes yeah. eating dogs or like hawks coming down and like picking up a dog. But I wonder how much those stories are like the stories of, I hate to say it, but like kids getting kidnapped, which like does Such happen. Such a good question. But hardly ever. What, and the statistic is your kid has to stand in the same place for 70,000 years to be abducted. 
That's the statistic. Yeah, or like or like razor blades and Halloween candy, which like right. never actually happened, you right. know. But the stories we tell ourselves yeah. to sort of keep people in our lives for doing stuff they want to do because it just it fills us with fear and also like it's a little inconvenient. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. And whether we're mapping that onto our kids and our dogs and and we're also just I think it's safe to say that I feel like we're more culture of fear than we've been. Like I feel like, you know, things have not changed a lot, but I feel like the twenty four hour media news cycle and you know what I mean? Like we're just For scared. Sure. We're scared of things all the time in a way that I think we just weren't before. I like mean, life didn't seem as terrifying, even though statistically it was more dangerous 50 years ago than 100%. it is today. 100%. You know? Yeah. And even yeah. more dangerous 1,500 years ago. You know what That's I mean? Right. Like, yes. yeah. Yes. Yeah. When we were trick-or-treating last night, I mean, I'm with this, you know, group of parents. They're awesome. I don't know them at all. And, I, you know, Annie's running around and the streets were like, we're, we were headed towards a really chill area, but the streets we were on were not chill. Like it was two-way traffic people are driving 50 miles per hour like it was crazy and there were sidewalks right but like the whole time all i can see is like a car running off onto the sidewalk and plowing through a group of kids it's literally just on repeat in my brain and i'm gasping at certain points because a kid would fall off the sidewalk and like i felt very responsible for my kid and this kid who was with us so like i'm in full like southern mom voice like oh my bell get back on the sidewalk hey get back on that you know among people who have just met me right so finally i'm just like hey both my parents died in a car accident three years ago and i'm terrified constantly and Everyone was like, okay. You know, it's like no one knew what to say, but I'm like, I function at such a high level of fear now mm. that it's just, you know, I mean, it, yeah, I, t- I think that's 100% true. I don't think I'm alone in that. But so, didn't you guys yeah. hear that Mikey from Life, the Life Cereal commercials died from eating Pop Rocks one time? <laughs> <laughs> that's not true is it true no but that was a rumor that went around like the oh razor god. blades in, in, in oh my god in, in yeah i hear you i think well, it is it is definitely the fear sells you know it does feel like as a culture we've gone so all in on fear and safety probably at the expense of freedom both for ourselves our kids our pets like all around well right? but, but yeah a- but i would say we got to stress less about the stuff that doesn't matter right so my dogs are going to be dead in the next five to ten years they're not going to go to college get a boyfriend or girlfriend come back and be mad at me okay yes so if i want to put them on medication and only give them two and a half minutes outside every day what does it matter okay <laughs> Well, there's there's a lot of some emails. Yeah, you're gonna get some emails. <laughs> I'll Just delete them. Sedate them, lobotomize them. Why not? Sure, why not? Why not? Well, I, th- I right. think let's let's shift gears. I want to talk not only about a uh, little bit of that loneliness stuff, but also celebrities. We, you know, actually we don't talk about celebrities very much. We and don't. For some and people I'm, that say we talk about so pop culture. It's so disappointing for me. Yeah. But we're gonna talk about two ones. One of whom yeah. I know Sarah's got some things to say about. Um, and RJ, I don't know if you really care, but it would be interesting to see what you have to say. But first is all, so this, this we're recording this the week after Matthew Perry of Friends, uh, yeah. Chandler Bing died. And I want to talk about him in relation to uh, an article that appeared in the New York Times. But also, Sarah, we are going to talk about Brittany because yes. she has a new memoir out and it's yes, making some does. waves. Mm-hmm. It sounds heavy, <laughs> like yeah. heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but let's start with a less, I mean, very heavy subject as well, Matthew Perry. This is written by Patty Davis, Ronald Reagan's daughter, who's, you know, been a person who's been very vocal about oh, addiction. Yeah. She wrote it in the New York Times called Matthew Perry and the Loneliness of Addiction. 
She says this. She says, I want to tell you something about addiction. No matter who it is or what substance that person is hooked on, loneliness is at its root. For whatever reason, there are those of us who feel isolated in this world, as if everyone else has some secret formula for getting along, for fitting in, and no one ever let us in on it. That loneliness resides deep inside us, at our core, and no matter how many people try to help us, no matter how many friends reach out, support us, show up for us, it never entirely goes away. It's vast and shadowy and also part of who we are, so something happens when we discover a drug or alcohol. Suddenly, we have a companion holding our hand, propping us up, making us feel we fit in. We can be part of the club. It's there for us in the empty hours when it seems no one else is. Last year at the LA Times Festival of Books, Matthew Perry said, nobody wanted to be famous more than me, but fame does not do what you think it's going to do. I remember hearing him saying that and thinking, right, it doesn't penetrate that loneliness. That's Miss Davis speaking again. Hmm. Perry spoke about being lonely often. He wrote about it in his book and he talked about it in the context of longing for a relationship. I wondered if he knew that even the joy and fulfillment of a relationship don't fill up that insecure place deep inside us. When I quit drugs for good, I had to accept that this was just part of who I am. I didn't have to fix it or try to obliterate it. That hadn't worked anyway. We may never know what Matthew Perry's emotional state was at the time of his death. Had he come to terms with the fact that fame made addiction so much harder to bear, but also allowed him to help others through the story of his journey and through the sober living house he created? Perry once said, the best thing about me, bar none, is that if somebody comes up to me and says, I can't stop drinking, can you help me? I can say yes and follow up and do it. Hmm. Matthew Perry laid bare his wounds, his struggles, his complicated relationship with drugs and alcohol. That's the best we can do in life. Be truthful and hope those truths become lanterns for others as they wander through the dark. My biggest hope is that he knew he had fulfilled his wish. I think it's quite a beautiful... I mean, Matthew Perry also, you know talked about God in a very visceral and beautiful way. We, we, mm-hmm. we published that excerpt from his memoir. Um, and that is his, that is part of what he talks about in terms of how to get sober, but loneliness, addiction. I, I, I think she's, I think this is right. This tracks. I mean, loneliness is the, is the, uh, impetus for so much of our, I don't know, dysfunctional or, uh, antisocial behavior. Yeah. I mean, this is very comforting to me to hear just because I think, we do feel like everyone else has it figured out. We do feel like we're, you know, alone in our loneliness. And also, maybe there's not really a cure for that, this side of heaven. And I think that's like a good word, right? I mean, I, I, there's certainly things we can do, right? Like getting sober or not being on social media or, right? Like there, we all have addictions, you know, mm-hmm. flat out. And so what, you know, there are certain ways we can like quote unquote manage those addictions, but making peace with the fact, which, you know, if you've ever uh, hung out with somebody who's been in AA, making peace with your addiction, making peace with, you know, your loneliness is, is a really accepting it is a really fundamental thing. Mm. And, you know, as someone who lives in grief all the time, like actually this is like very convicting for me because it's mm-hmm. like when you make peace with it, right? When you just accept that it's part of who you are and you're not constantly trying to like long for a different life or, you know, to be like a normal person, whatever that means, um, there's, you know, maybe you have the the space to do other things. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I still want to talk about Britney Spears. Oh, it's so coming. Just, Don't worry. Okay, good. No, all right, all right. but fame, fame is just yeah. such a. Uh, it's what it's so. All these kids that I, you know, my my own kids now, they're all so obsessed with these YouTubers that are that are basically the whole object of life is to get famous, right? And it's yet the testimony from everyone who is certainly, or at least most of the people I trust, seems to be that fame it does not solve that inner thing. Does not satisfy, and does yeah. not satisfy, and we really. Um, uh, you know, I'm struck by, I, I was speaking in San Diego last week and I, I was talking about, um, the Rolling Stones and, you know, the, they just released a, their record. They're 80 years old. And the last original song on their record, which is probably the last original song they'll put out is called Sweet Sounds of Heaven. And it's Jagger singing about heaven and God. And he says, I'm going to, he talks about church. Um, and he says, I'm going to eat the bread and drink the wine. I'm finally quenching my thirst. And mm. there's a, there's a faith that he's they're using their sort of dying breath to talk about where that thirst finally be quenched. But I, I, the only sort of break I would have with Patty Davis is that I think it's not just addicts that feel this way. I think everyone right. feels this way. They may not just yeah. be using subs. They might be predisposed to substances, but it's a sh- it's an opportunity to shout out. By the way, I think one of the best things Mockingbird ever did was publish the book Grace and Addiction. So if anyone John's out there, book. yeah, totally, they should check it out. But RJ, what, yeah. what, are, you, what are you thinking? Well, everything you guys said, and then also, I remember we talked a little while ago about. Um, I think it was during the pandemic about sports, about football, and about how football helped a lot of men fill time in the middle of the day mm-hmm. when it's like, what else would you do mm-hmm. with yourself? And I think mm-hmm. there's think just about the Roman Empire, so, right? The dishes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of, you know, <laughs> a lot of life is trying to fill time in a way that you're not just sitting alone with your thoughts. You're not sitting alone yeah. with your fear, with your anxiety, with your loneliness. Like, what can I do? Like, I cannot, I cannot possibly sit still by myself and just do nothing, yeah. be bored or anxious or whatever. So what am I going to do, whether it's go to work or exercise or drink or watch football or whatever, to kind of distract myself from that, that hole that's at the, at the center of myself? Now, I do think yeah. there's some people who get better at that. You know, through mindfulness, through meditation, through, you know, prayer, through uh, just being able to find that quiet space. But it's pretty terrifying. It's pretty, it, it's hard, you know. And I would say it is not unlike sobriety in that you will fall off of whatever that wagon is, yeah. right? Like yeah. you're going to, you're, it's not, that's the thing is like, you're, it's, it's not going to be flawless, right? It's, you're still yeah. a human being and you still sin and you still fail and you still return to vices. And like, that's, you know, that's our plight, right? And that loneliness never goes away. I think we just find ways to either manage it in health or manage it for ill well fame does not seem to be a healthy way of managing no, it, it and, no, and attention no. and uh you know i i think that perry sort of sought out fame i sometimes feel that fame was sought out for britney spears i mean i, I don't oh 100 i think like with child stars they sort of are put on this um assembly line yeah and this is about britney and this is interesting this is a uh, britney finally tells her story it's dark writes spencer cornhaber in the atlantic monthly and uh, she's just released a uh, memoir called uh, The Woman in Me. And uh, she, he writes, says, One of the most disturbing parts of Britney Spears' story has long been the way people talk about her. 
As soon as the pop star was released from the legal guardianship of her father in November 2021, ending a 13-year ordeal that she had described as torture, some onlookers asked whether one of the most successful women on earth could handle living as an adult. And you can now find people claiming that freeing Britney, allowing her to, for example, choose how she spends her money or what she eats for dinner, was a mistake. Now, the new memoir makes it clear that this sort of shaming and second-guessing of her, but by using the language of care and concern, has sort of been a part of what she's dealt with her entire life. Um, She portrays herself as battling the media expectation that she remained trapped in girlhood, virginal, and helpless. But she also writes with mystification about the scale of her story, the extraordinary drama and unfairness of it. A reader may come away feeling that her struggle is older, more primal than our cultural era. People seem to want her to be a scapegoat for all manner of human beings. And in fact, they seem to want to punish her. So readers expecting a breezy celebrity memoir will be shocked by the grim opening pages. And Sarah, you've got to read the opening, if nothing else. Describing her childhood in rural Louisiana, Spears' declarative sentences have the ominousness of the Old Testament. Tragedy runs in my family, Spears writes, before describing her paternal grandfather, June, as an abusive man who committed two of his wives to mental hospitals. One of those wives killed herself on the grave of her infant child. Oh, my God. Are we related? June's harshness. (laughs) This is why I knew we had to talk about this. June's harshness, Spears Spears, made her own father, Jamie, a cruel and demanding alcoholic. And so singing beckoned an escape from her tense home life. But of course, the stage provided no refuge from others' judgment and control. And I guess a large part of the book uh, the, uh, um, deals with her relationship with Justin Timberlake and the way that the media sort of lionized him and sort of blamed her as this kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, the, the way the media portrayal of that relationship, she was absolutely devastated by it. She talks about being silly in love with this man and how he's kind of maintained this good guy status while she was just shattered on the side of the road. He put her he put her figure, I mean, so it looks like her in a video about, like, it's the Crimea River video where it's like, he had this, he, there's a woman in there that is supposed to look like Britney Spears who basically cheated on, right, him. I mean, he, it, and this is, it is like when we reflect back, you know, it's funny when we reflect back historically, like 50 years ago, and we talk about gender dynamics and how we treated women, like it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, that was awful. That was 50 years ago. When I look at the way that Britney Spears was treated in the media during this time, it's ghastly to me. Also, Justin Timberlake is dead to me now, and I own a copy of his biography, whatever it is. It's a big coffee table book, and I'm I'm going to burn it. Yeah, so he's he's I just, running for shelter right now. He's dead to me. I mean, the problem with that, Sarah, is that unfortunately, he wrote his absolute greatest song about it. I mean, Cry Me a River, the song, oh. I mean... It it may, it may be a, it's really good. It may be a, it's a by, beautiful song. It's a yeah. by numbers Michael Jackson imitation. Like, oh, let's just yeah. face it. There's yes. Michael Jackson. Yes. It, when I first heard it, I was like, oh, it, did Michael write this? Yeah. It's that yeah. good. But I think yeah. to me myself, gosh, if, 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 the, if the revenge song had been a little, or the self-pity song had been a little uh, worse, uh, it would be easier yeah. to have dismissed. But let's, she so, so, but she does talk about sort of being in this scrutiny, unbelievable scrutiny, and that says, as she Spears matured, the cycle of scrutiny and rebellion accelerated. Through, and though the rebellion, such as Spears having kids with a quote-unquote bad boy, the backup dancer Kevin 
and Federline and attacking a paparazzo's car with an umbrella uh, come off as tame in the book's telling. The underlying mysteries of her long legal saga remain vexing, both to the reader and to Spears herself. She says, I know I'd been acting wild, but there was nothing I'd done that justified their treating me like I was a bank robber. Nothing that justified upending my entire life. At the dawn of the internet age, Spears at first seemed the perfect every girl, singing through a sweet smile. But with every passing month, she revealed herself as instead a human being with flaws and appetites. This was a reality that the machine around her could not abide. Spears's famous hoisting of a python at the 2001 VMAs is the enduring image of her career for a good reason. She was our era's Eve, bearing the snake of mm. sin on her shoulders. Whoa, Spencer! Spears now wants to, quote, get my spiritual life in order, to pay attention to the little things, and to slow down. Yet the discussion spinning around her, dissecting and judging and creating mythological storylines for the masses to get invested in, has hardly decelerated. Britney Spears is not a mere character on our screens, but a mortal woman who is alive and perceiving. And so perhaps we should all watch our mouths. All right. What do you think, Sarah? I love it. I mean, I, you know, Brittany and I kind of grew up together, right? So she was the, like, like I can remember, and you know, you the the trauma of women of my generation of seeing her in like impossibly low cut pants, okay, mm-hmm. with washboard abs and a belly button ring, and I'm like a theater student that doesn't like to walk fast. You know what I mean? In eleventh grade, like, how am I gonna get that? You know. And I remember feeling a kind of, and and so it's not surprising to me that people turned on her, this kind of resentment of like, she was, she embodied, right, this like unachievable form in a lot of ways. And um, it's so interesting to age and to look back and to hear those people's stories and and to think about how trapped in that she was. I mean, one thing I, I do know that she talked about in this memoir is like her Vegas show, which, of course, people loved. I mean, I think every gay man in my life, save one, went to see that. <laughs> um she felt like it was way too sexual and she was really uncomfortable. Mm. And you're just like, who is this sweet person that has been really just like adulterated you know has been just drugged through the worst of life um for the sake of of you know other people's income and you know and her dad has certainly failed her her mom has certainly failed her you know as the meme says good morning to everyone but jamie lynn spears her sister Mm -hmm. you know like I just, I, she, I mean, you want to talk about lonely, like, and she was married very briefly. I mean, I definitely follow her on Instagram. So she was married very briefly in the past few years and she was, you know, part of this thing she was under was she couldn't have another child, which is horrible. Yeah. And she was finally able to have a baby and she had a miscarriage and then they got divorced. And it's like, my word, like, can this woman not catch a win, you know, which is I never thought I would say that about Britney Spears in 1998, you know, but it's like, it's just horrible. Well, it's like we, we move on. These celebrities, we um, we use them, uh, we build them up, we tear them down, and then you sort of move on and you realize yeah. like they're still having to they're still there. pick up the detritus. And, and certainly it happens with child stars more than anyone and probably... Uh, you know, female child stars in a different way yeah. than you can even understand. I mean, Spencer does say some things have clearly been left out of this memoir. Like we, we, we don't know the whole story because you do watch those Instagram videos. And I just have to say, as just a human being, you're like, 
I mean, how, there's no chance of having a kind of a normal uh, soul, I guess you could say, after being raised that way. There will be damage, lots of it, and there's just no way to escape that. So, right. you know. Well, and they're, they're actually, I mean, you look at those and you think there may be legitimate mental illness here. Yeah. But because of what has happened to her, she can't have a normal experience where she goes in and gets Lexapro. Not at all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, like I totally, she can't, I totally agree. Like that's been taken from her. And so it's like, not only is she haunted by what could have been, but she's also haunted by like the person she's had to become. I don't know. It just, it's, when you, when, it's a terrible experience. When you become really me. important to people at a very certain stage of your life, they don't allow you to age. I mean, they just look yeah. at Macaulay Culkin. I mean, it's just, yeah. they do not allow you to age. And so in order yeah. to do that, it's like, it's perceived as like an aggressive thing to simply continue existing. It's, I just say it's hard to absorb the details about this and feel anything but just in normal, not just compassion, but a little bit of repentance. It's like, we did this. Totally. You know, we did this. And, yes. and the, the waistlines of women's jeans could not be higher than they are right now. But Oh my God, which I love, Lord Jesus. <laughs> we just come to you and we come to your throne, Lord, but, and we ask but when they, that our waistlines stay high. But when they were that low, which aka means that much harder to, I think, pull off, she was the one oh. Doing it. She yeah, was fulfilling think? the law. Oh, yeah, she was pulling it off. She was fulfilling the law. That is true. Yes. Well, it's really, I'm glad she's looking to uh, get spiritually sort of uh, attuned or something. Um, yeah. And I do. I just want her to like move to Biloxi, Mississippi, get a house by the beach, wear moos. Like, I just want mm. like Cheetos in her life, just like joy, romance novels. But you you know what you have to have to move home and to have that? You have to have family that loves you. Like, you have yeah. to have a place to yeah. land. And yeah. that poor Brittany, she does not have Oof. family that loves That's her. That's true. She's got no you know? I mean, it sounds like a Southern oh, Southern girl. Gothic novel, like a Flannery O'Connor thing. That she's it really of, does. It, it, mix that with the Mickey Mouse Club. I mean, you have a very American oh, no. uh, weirdness uh, happening. Well, let's move on to something that I think enables sort of ministry and compassion for all manner of folks, not just celebrities, not just addicts, and not just sort of anxious pet owners. But this is an article that everyone and their brother sent to me, uh, including you, RJ. Uh, about It's from the LA Times. Stanford scientist, after decades of study, concludes, we do not have free will. After more than 40 years studying humans and other primates, Stanford neurobiologist Robert Saplosky has reached the conclusion that virtually all human behavior is as far beyond our conscious control as the convulsions of a seizure, the division of cells, or the beating of our hearts. Whoa! What? This means accepting that a man who shoots into a crowd has no more control over his faith than the victims who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. It means treating drunk drivers who barrel into pedestrians just like drivers who suffer a sudden heart attack and veer out of their lane. Now, to be clear, I'm reading from the LA Times. Not This is not me editorializing. Uh, the world is really screwed up, Saplosky says, and made much, much more unfair by the fact that we reward people and punish people for things they have no control over. We've got no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there. Now, saying that people have no free will, uh, the writer in the Times, uh, who I think her name is uh, Corinne Pertil, uh, says that is a great way to start an argument. 
Yet this, and this is partly why Saplowski put off writing his new book, Determined. After a long cross-disciplinary, <laughs> cross-disciplinary career, he feels it's intellectually dishonest to write anything other than what he sees as the unavoidable conclusion. Free will is a myth, and the sooner we accept that, the more just our society will be. We know we make worse decisions when hungry, stressed, or scared. We know our physical makeup is influenced by the genes inherited from distant ancestors and by our mother's health during her pregnancy. Abundant evidence indicates that people who grew up in homes marked by chaos and deprivation will perceive the world differently and make different choices than people raised in safe, stable, resource-rich environments. A lot of important things are beyond our control. But... Like, everything? We have no meaningful command over our choice of careers, romantic partners, or weekend plans? If you reach out right now and pick up a pen, was even that insignificant an action somehow preordained? Saplowski says, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So He was raised in an Orthodox Jewish household in Brooklyn. He's no longer a uh, believer. Uh, He's the son of immigrants from uh, former Soviet Union, but a very religious... Even now he's no longer a believer? Uh, Like now he hasn't come back to it? Let's get to the end of it. He he talks about being involved with the Justice Without Retribution Mm -hmm. Network, Mm -hmm. which advocates for an approach to criminal activity that prioritizes preventing future harm rather than assigning blame. Mm. She also brings up uh, a widely cited 2008 study that found that people who read passages dismissing the idea of free will were more likely to cheat on a subsequent test than those who didn't. Other studies have found that people who feel less control over their actions care less about making mistakes in their work and that disbelief in free will leads to more aggression and less helpfulness. The greatest risk of abandoning free will, though, Saplowski concedes, isn't that we'll want to do bad things. It's that, without a sense of personal agency, we won't want to do anything. Mm. Saplowski knows he won't persuade most of his readers. It's hard to convince people who have been harmed that perpetrators deserve less blame because of their history of poverty. It's even harder to convince the well-off that their accomplishments deserve less praise because of their history of privilege. There is only one thread that he can't resolve. It is logically indefensible, ludicrous, meaningless to believe that something, quote, good can happen to a machine. We are machines in his view. Nonetheless, I am certain that it is good if people feel less pain and more happiness. I like that he's like into total depravity now. I mean, he's certainly like, but he cannot, he doesn't know how to reconcile this instinct that clearly there is a moral dimension to life. Right. And, you know, I think we, we, we talk about free will and the sort of constraints, the bondage of the will that theologically speaking, it just is so clear that, um, the, the injunction to sort of choose God is not a free choice to people. Um, you know, it's, it's just a recipe for hating them if you think that they have total free will in all things. And to love people, especially, you know, people in your church or um, misbehaving, uh, you know, human beings is to um, have some conception that they're not in control of themselves all the time. But I don't think, as a Christian, I don't think that neutralizes the moral dimension. I think it makes the grace of God that much more beautiful, that we are forgiven, not just for the things we can control, but especially for the things we can't control. Um, but this is a this is a science sort of kind of coming to the same conclusions that theologians have come to. RJ, why did you send us the article? Because we believe this is true, you know, article Article 10 of the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, you know, of free will. Man cannot, by his own free will, turn and prepare himself to salvation and good works. 
You know, we can't do anything. It says, unless God precedes us, unless God in his grace precedes us and works through us and in us, like we can't, we can't do anything good. We can't choose God unless God does it in us. Um, and I could, you know, if you're a Christian and you're like, this is insane, what are you talking about? Um, go read Romans 9, you know, where mm-hmm. Paul, uh, read all of Romans, first of all, just read all mm-hmm. of it, <laughs> but read Romans 9, what Paul has to say about um, God being in control of things and, and um, about the classic objection to that. But I also, I feel like in that article or another article I read in response to it, one of the arguments made against talking about this was that if people really think they have no control over everything, they will fall into despair. They'll fall into total despair. And I think that's true, actually, if there's no God, if there's no God. Now, if there's a God who loves us and knows us and calls us by name and is in charge of everything and is working for our good and is not against us but is for us, then the idea that we don't have free will is actually incredibly comforting because it means that in the midst of life's total disastrousness, um, we're not in charge, right? This is what I always say to people when we talk about free will. I'm like, you know, if I have to choose between putting my future in my hands or God's hands, I'll choose God every time because I will blow it. I will screw it up, you know? Um, but I think it just it's really interesting that, yes, to believe in no free will without with no God is, a, is incredibly uh, scary, but the converse is also true. Um, and like we talk about all the time, Dave, that if you actually see people as not being free agents, you'll have so much more compassion on them when they make disastrous choices. And you're rather than wondering, why can't you get your act together? Just get your act together. Um, it's like, well, they can't. I saw this Niebuhr quote recently about how um, uh, most of the evil in the world is not done by evil people. It's done by people who think they're good. Right, everyone thinks they're everyone thinks they're good mostly, um, and then they just do awful things because they're convinced of their own goodness. So, well, from a Christian perspective, if like you've said before, if if you see people as free, the focus of your ministry and your preaching will be to bind them, to bind them, and to control them, or to thing, help yeah. them yes. behave better, to put to to yes. put constraints. If you see people as bound, your goal is to free them. So yeah. good. It's so good. It's such a better way to live um, than to, to to live life as if you are in control is so incredibly frustrating and hopeless, even when things are going well, even when things are going well, because then you're just thinking, you're just like, I got to keep it up. I got to keep it up. To live life as if God is in control, there's just, and a God who loves you, a God who is for you in and through everything, even when things are hard, who's doing something, even when things are hard, who's died for you, um, mm-hmm. there's just so much more freedom and joy. In that, that actually produces fruit—the fruit of goodness. I also think of the amazing compassion I just immediately feel for Britney Spears, knowing that she's sort of basically oh been gosh. trapped her whole. But life. also her father. But yeah, who's? But also, nah. What <laughs> <laughs> wasn't it? His dad who like put two of his wives in mental institutions and was. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sarah, what? what but like, all, I, there's also for me like there's there's a line as a parent where it's like you you've been this child has been entrusted into your care, right? And um. And you're you're asked to at least take care of them in a minimal way. So I, you know, I I understand the kind of way that we perceive this as Christians. I had never thought about how bleak it is for the world of psychology to perceive this without any religious context. I mean, RJ basically just said that, but had never occurred to me, right, that 
the bleakness of of what it would mean if everyone fully understood, right? Um, that that they don't really have any control in their lives. I mean, I but I do think the way into it is is Jesus and and like the Holy Spirit pushing you around and like yes. yeah, I mean. I was going into the paint store yesterday to pick out samples, you know, which is like how hard my life is. And um, I she was like, bathrobe. Yeah, it's sitting in my bathroom. I'm like, oh my God, which color of neutral, like beige, do I need for my bathroom? Um, and there was this lady sitting on the sidewalk, uh, older. Uh, also, it's gotten super cold in Nashville clearly homeless and she yells at me can you buy me some food um and then she goes you guys she goes and this is like baller she goes would you buy me some food in jesus name and i'm like okay girl so i go into the paint store (laughs) so i'm like i gotta go in here right now i go into the paint store i'm like doing stuff i cannot get her out of my head and like I just want to be clear. This lady is not, you know, people are like, oh, could be angels among you. This ain't it. Because, like, everybody who was like RJ Shrugs, no, it's not her. The Old Testament, some of those prophets, man. Yeah, well, every person, like, this is her line. Because every person who she sees, she's yelling so loud I can hear it through the Sherwin-Williams paint store glass, which is very very unpleasant for me and she's like every person she's like well yeah buy me some food you know like in jesus name so i gotta get my kid and i don't have time to buy this lady food um and i look in my purse and there's a ten dollar bill and i'm like i'm just gonna hand her the ten dollar bill and leading up to like walking towards her having this whole thought process all i can think about is like all the voices in my head that are like you know, she's probably going to spend it on drugs or alcohol. And, you know, um, this is how homeless people stay homeless. And, you know, we have systems for them and resources. And, like, she should uh, she should access those resources. And just the whole time I was like, that's the devil. Like, I'm clearly called to hand this lady a $10 bill. It do- It's not my business what she does with it. It's the Lord's business, right? And then move on with my day. But, like, that's what it feels like to know that you really don't have will. <laughs> like, it's like, as a Christian, right, is is that you are going to be, it all, I always use the word, and I've used it here before, you, you feel pushed. Like, I feel pushed into these spaces that I'm like, Lord, you know, there's a whole lot of statistics that we're not supposed to give homeless people money. $10 is a lot of money, you know. And it's like, no, uh-uh, this is what we're doing. So, I, you know, I, I it ma- but it makes me sad for, you know, for my, my beloved people who are in this world who are, like, bound, so bound to science that, that, they're now discovering things that like, right. I mean, we say, Oh, theologians have talked about this. I mean, you know, Paul talked about like, this is like, this was such a turning point in Christianity. Like we, you know, we do the thing we do not want to do. Right. And now the world of psychology is just discovering it. And yet, right. It, for them, what that means is total darkness. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do think that this is the key to a ministry of grace, uh, but of of course, yeah. uh, that's because I believe that the that the human uh, all all the um, influences and stimuli that um, 
the Saplowski talks about are not all there is in the world. Like I think that there's, uh, I don't have the certainty to say that that's it's a vacuum sealed universe where there's no other. I just have seen too much, and you see someone like Matthew Perry who should have been dead a long time ago continue to yeah. live and be saved, um, and in order to help other people and to tell them about God, you know, and. But again, addiction is the great laboratory in which uh, any kind of uh, help uh, has to uh, find traction. Any kind of advice, if it doesn't account for addiction, which really is to say people who don't seem to have any kind of control or free will when it comes to the biggest problems. That's all you want to say to people from... When I want to convince them about this, I I don't say you have no free will, you you did not choose which socks you wore this morning. You want to say, no, I mean, maybe you did, I don't know. Uh, But I know that when it comes to the, 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 the pain points in your life will be the places where you know you should love that person, you know you should forgive that person, you know you should stop doing that, but you just can't seem to. That will be the place of pain, and that'll be the place where any of this talk about deliverance and um, salvation will find any kind of, uh, of of a foundation or any kind of purchase. No, There's no question in my mind that if you have a theology that doesn't or a picture of Jesus as someone who only deals with people who are making healthy choices for him, then that's a very small Jesus. I mean, that's just a very, and it has very little to do, I think, with the actual Jesus we see in the Bible. Um, RJ would, RJ would know more since he's, he's read Romans. He knows the Uh, whole Bible. Just kidding. Yeah, just, it's a, it sort of inoculates you to some degree against self-righteousness and then also despair, right? And I think just to to have a healthy, not just doctrine, but belief in the power of the Holy Spirit totally. at work in your own life, in the church, in the world, you know, means that you don't have to quite control people, control yourself, fix everything. You know, like I said, I remember what Tom Becker said to me once, who's a wonderful, you know, friend of Mockingbird and, and in recovery. He said, you know, in AA, in AA if someone tells someone else what to do, it's seen as a lack of faith in God. Because if you really believed in God, you wouldn't feel the need to tell that person what to do. Yeah. You know, like God's God's gonna God's gonna take care of it. Um, and generally speaking, some of those people take it are ready to hear advice, but just generally speaking, not. Yeah. The the entire um, way of looking at the world through the eyes of a sort of a diminished will, at least, is. It cannot be overstated. I, 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 I just don't know how you love people um, without seeing that. I mean, Britney Spears talks about how she felt she deserved. She'd she'd somehow done something to deserve all of the blame and scrutiny that she got. And Matthew Perry probably felt the same way. And I, I'm surrounded a lot of times by very successful people who I, I'm, I get the sense that they think that they actually deserve what they've received. And that they're somehow, you know, I, I remember reading those statistics about money managers and mm-hmm. saying that like, um, it turns out any money manager who tells you they've got some specific strength strategy that they're following that's going that's always going that they're sort of better than the curve it turns out no like th- no one it's simply the fact that the markets will rise over time that, that yeah. anyone who tells you they've they've got it figured out that they've got some sort of secret intel there's some mad genius operating in the corner to uh and and yet we all uh, we all think oh this pile of money i've made because i'm somehow really good you know yeah. but this the flip side is always true it's often true if, if you've if you've suffered some terrible hardship you think this is because i somehow did something and i think that 
what you're hearing about is that there's so many other factors involved, not only in your success and in your failure, but also, fortunately, in your redemption. Like, that's the key point. Um, but it need, it cuts both ways, is what I'm saying. It cuts both ways. Uh, you don't you don't deserve the things you got. You also probably don't deserve the bad that happened to you. And yet, even these things don't. Just because you weren't in control of them doesn't mean they're not they're morally neutral, right? Mm. Well, let's talk about this. is Matthew Sitman. Matt is a, a friend of mine from way back. He uh, used to live in Charlottesville, and then he was the editor of Commonweal Magazine, which is sort of a, a liberal Catholic magazine. And he got he's interviewed me a couple times. So, so cards on the table. I know this guy. He's gone on to have a very successful career as the host of a podcast called Know Your Enemy, which is which is billed as a leftist guide to the conservative movement. So, um, Matt's been on a quite a journey uh, politically. And uh, this, but this has really found a lot of traction among kind of, uh, you know, exactly uh, the, he would say, sort of the, the enclaves in Brooklyn and New York where he lives. Um, so, but this is, they do a QA uh, episode every once in a while. And they got this sort of left field question, or you might call it a right field question, that took Matt aback, but he, he had something really important to say. I'm going to ask you a question. I, I was actually just sort of moved to even see this question, um, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about it. This listener says, I am being ordained November 5th as a Baptist pastor. Do y'all have any words of advice for a young Baptist minister in rural North Carolina? Listeners will not be surprised to hear that I'm more interested in what Matt has to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, like you said, Sam, I was very moved this listener wrote in to ask that question. And uh, I was thinking about it, and I, I do have an answer. It's relatively short. You know, some listeners, maybe a lot of our listeners, have read my essay on depression that was, you know, nominally a review of George Shalaba's great book, How to Be Depressed, but it was very memoiristic. And I talk about my own experiences. And in that piece, I talk about my friends a lot and people who cared for me when I was at my worst. And one of the things I say is I now have an answer to the question. I mean, this is really the low point for me. It was kind of the worst of my depression, worst of my maybe self-destructive behavior. I now know the answer to the question who would I call to pick me up at jail, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, my, my housemate and great friend, Josh. But the second person I called was my priest, Paul Walker, the rector of uh, Christ Episcopal in Charlottesville. And his kindness to me and generosity toward me, he was about to leave on vacation with his family, but he made time to meet me uh, for coffee like the next day after the afternoon I called him. And the thing I would tell this young person who's going to be ordained is be the kind of pastor who, when people are at their lowest, when people feel they've fucked up their lives irrevocably or have behaved badly, be the kind of pastor who they do not hesitate to call on in the worst moment of their life, whatever that means, whatever that means yeah. in terms of the grace and mercy you show people what it means for you as a listener. I mean, listening to people and their problems, you know, whatever it means to cultivate the sensibility and approach to pastoral ministry that people trust you, that they're going to receive grace and not judgment when they come to you in the low point of their life, or even, yeah. even if it's not something they're at fault for, right? For the catastrophes and disasters and emergencies and, and pain we go through during this life of ours, Pastors are people in the midst of the nitty-gritty of people's lives. 
their joys and hopes, but also their suffering and pain. And when I think back, when I called Paul and told him what had happened to me, I was worried about a lot of things, but I was not worried about him giving me a lecture. Mm. People know when they screw up. They don't need a pastor to harangue them. They know what they've done, mm -hmm. at least in, in most cases, and uh, be the kind of pastor who people do not hesitate to turn to at their lowest moments. It was very touching to Paul, who uh, some people know is my uh, you know, colleague here in Charlottesville. And I remember when this happened, um, and this was a, Matt who had sort of grown up in a very, um, very uh, he would call it a fundamentalist uh, version of the faith, was kind of flabbergasted by the fact that A, he wanted to call his pastor during this time, and B, mm -hmm. his, his priest, uh, Matt's now Catholic, um, was so um, helpful and receptive and just a figure of pure grace to him in that moment. And it's such a thing that, you know, 12 years later, he's talking about it on a national podcast. I think that says a lot to me about how we actually are called to deal with people um, by the grace of God and with the grace of God in the midst of really what he calls the worst moment of their life. You're, you're both collared. What do you think? Barely. Um, I think, I mean, I think it's really good advice. You know, I, I do wonder if it's easier for our Baptist brothers and sisters to do this sorts of things than it is for our Episcopal uh, folks, just because you know, part of it is where I went to seminary, but it is a thing that I see in ministry often is that we really get lost in the doing of ministry, right? However, that may look for us. So in the, you know, the importance of the liturgy going well, or, you know, in how we're going to handle justice issues that, you know, in our community, and, you know, if we're going to go to this protest or not, or, or, you know, just lost in the academics of it, you know, and like a, like a rabbi in a Woody Allen movie. And then, you know, ministry itself is like if you're doing real ministry, it is this. It is being accessible. It is having these like hard moments with people where you do just hold space for them. And, you know, honestly, I think there's some theological questions there about what are people coming out of seminary thinking they it's like, you know, we, we really do come out of seminary thinking we need to fix things. And seminary, by and large, our Episcopal seminaries just sort of overemphasize that. And then, you know, it's just so much easier to to think that we're making, you know, moving the mark on a justice issue than it is to sit with a couple when the husband is cheated on the wife. Mm. It's just easier, right? It's harder to to go deep with people like this. Um, and so I think our denomination in particular would really benefit from more people thinking about this is actually what the priesthood is. Like you don't get to put books or issues or politics or whatever in between you and your people. You don't get to put anything there. You you actually have to be present to them. So, and it's important. Well, you, did I, have I you talked about dispensaries before on this podcast? You guys remember me? Like where you get weed? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, no? I, I was just, I um, was struck by the fact that now uh, we're in several states as they've sort of um, 
have these, have these legalized marijuana. Everything's yeah. a dispensary, right? And yeah. I remember um, reading, I think it might have been in Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace, where he just says, uh, to be dispensers of grace, um, which means that you you know you're going to go there and it's going to be on tap. Like you're not, that's what you're going to get. Um, and yeah. what if we reclaim the word dis- dispensary of God's grace? Like it's, it's, it's not really up to us whether how we view the situation. In fact, the, the, the obligation or the, the, the call, the vocation is to be a dispensary of grace. And um, that's what Matt is talking about, I think, is that like we, we lack... Any place, you know, I was the, the your, your your clergy was your forgiveness person, you know, and um, yeah. to be what would it be look like to reconceive of houses of worship as dispensaries of grace, and not as dispensaries of consequence, you know, we leave that to the courts, you know, dispensaries of science even leave that to Robert Saplowski, but we you could just uh, we're here to be the place you come to when you need grace and. Um, Guys, I'm, I'm telling you right now, uh, we don't get to name our churches really in the Episcopal Church, and it's usually Saint something or Christ or whatever, but for all our non-denom listeners listening, <laughs> if you are thinking about planting a church, you need to name it the dispensary, okay? <laughs> and let us know how that goes. I mean, why not? <clears throat> yeah, why not? I I'm love here that. for it. RJ, what do, you, you're, what do you think here? I'm just always so struck how people who don't come to church, they think that my job is um, to make people moral, to teach yeah. ethics, to, to make people good, that they come to... That, that's my whole job, to teach people how to be good. And I just have to say to them all the time, that is not my job. My job is to, yeah, proclaim forgiveness. I'm in the forgiveness business, the mercy business. I'm not here to make you good. I'm here to, uh, uh, to sympathize, empathize with the fact that you're not good and remind you that you're loved and forgiven. Uh, there's a God who's bigger than any of that. Do you, um, do you remember the interview Nadia Boltz-Weber did with Terry Gross, where Terry Gross was like, but yeah, what do you mind do? Mind blown. Mind yeah, blown. Yeah, she was yes. like, but what do you yeah. do? do you, like, you, don't you make people better and make them want to do more? And she's like, no. No. Like, yeah. No. <laughs> Now the Holy Spirit might. The Holy yeah. Spirit might. Yeah. But I can't do anything. Yeah. I can't do anything. Um, and then also, Sarah, as you were talking, and I th- I do think every every denomination has its unique challenges. And I do think um, that a lot of priests in our denomination do see themselves as kind of pastors and chaplains and, and want to be available to their people. But I think also, you know, you've got to be on guard of it just you gotta think sort of small. Right, you mm, got to think small. I love that. Yes, like my like my buddy um, who I love, who's a former missionary and now a professor at, at the local um, university, said, "You know, it's not. I said this before. It's not Christians' jobs to change the world. Like that's God's job. Mm-hmm. It's Christians' jobs. Um, you know, uh, to just and, and this is gonna sound a little legal, but you you you'll know what I mean. Just to love your neighbor. Just love the person next yeah. to you. Just yeah. be available to the person next to you. You're not going to change the world. And the degree to which you think your job is to affect some massive you know, social change. Now, that might happen by the grace of God. Maybe that sure. is God's plans for you. Sure. And if it is, you're going to be swept up in that. But really, your Heaven job... forbid you get famous for it, though. Heaven yeah, forbid. exactly. Heaven forbid. <laughs> Heaven forbid. That won't help. Um, but really, your job is to love your people and provide for your people, be available, preach the gospel, be available to your people and just, um, yeah, don't let the media worry about the huge things that you can't control. Yeah. (laughs) So title of this episode is going to be, what do you think? Uh, Britney Spears has no free will. How's that? No, I think (laughs) Justin Timberlake is dead to me. (laughs) 
<laughs> do you want to do that? Um, yes. Okay. You need to do a deep dive on Justin Timberlake and gain a little grace for that. You know, I, he's, he's I just, do. He I was do. a kid. You know, I know. He's, yeah, I know. Anyway, um, I know. well, I, uh, I, I just, I, I think you guys are great. And even if you didn't choose to uh, to be here or to uh, be so kind to me, I still appreciate it. And um, thank you very much. And uh, cry me a river. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Bye. Bye, y'all. Till next time. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mocking Cast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. 